Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. So, this episode is Lord willing dropping with just hours left of 2021, and I thought, what better way for a Theonomous podcast to drop an episode leading into the new year? than to talk about Psalm 2 and nations raging against God and God crushing them unless they obey him. After all, isn't theonomy about nations, like on the governmental level, obeying God's law, not just us on the individual level? Now, we're not like NAR here saying we're going to like force top-down obedience to God's word. This is through the Great Commission. That's why it's theonomy along with post-mill, not just one or the other. I mean, there are people that are just one or the other, but I'm both. And I think that both work together like that, that as we see more and more Christians in a nation, that will change the laws. I think it's a safe thing to say that a nation with 10% of the population being genuine believers and a nation with 90% of the population being genuine believers would look different, not just on a cultural level, but even on a political level not so much politics as in political parties although it would affect that but politics as in like legislation of laws and things like that but all that to say we are going to look at psalm 2 to jump into the new year and wow do i have a lot of notes for this episode so i'm gonna have to just summarize some things in my notes maybe skip some sections that seem less vital Maybe just have to talk fast and some of you that listen to me sped up will have to slow down this episode a little bit. I don't know, but I'm going to try to keep this episode from going over an hour long. Now, I know you all don't mind when I go over an hour because that episode I did about a month ago with Matt Belleville was an hour plus and it is one of the most downloaded episodes so far. But most of the time, I'm assuming people don't want me to go a full hour. I don't know if you want every episode to be an hour long, then... Let me know and I can make some adjustments. But I try to keep that like 25-ish minutes, sometimes up to like 40 minute length as typical. So let's see how long today's episode is as we dive through Psalm 2. But before we jump in, please, like normal, subscribe to the podcast, turn on auto downloads, tell your friends about it, and follow Theana Money on social media. So Let's jump in. First, I'm going to read Psalm 2 out of the Legacy Standard Bible. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. 
today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So with that, let's give a little bit of context. Uh, Psalms 1 and 2, they make the introduction to the entire Psalter, a lot of people would say. And here's a section where I'm going to skip through some of my notes because there's some things I want to talk about with that. But like I said, I don't know if all of you like hour-long episodes, so I got to try to skip some parts of my notes somewhere or this will be super long. David wrote this psalm. We see that in Acts 4. It doesn't say David's name at the heading, but Acts 4.25 says David wrote it. Uh, there are four sections. It's 12 verses long, four sections of three verses each. Your Bible probably breaks them up with paragraph breaks after each of those three verse long sections. And there are clear topics for each of these three sections. I'm sorry, four sections of three verses. Man's rebellion with the first three verses. God's response to that rebellion with verses four through six. Jesus installed as king and he crushes those who rebel in verses 7 through 9. And then lastly, verses 10 through 12, those who obey God are blessed. And personally, I think this psalm is the clearest example we have of the gospel in the entire book of Psalms. Now, people can debate that. Some people might say Psalm 22 is because it has the clearest picture of the cross of Christ's crucifixion. And that's true. Psalm 22 says nothing even on the level of saying that Christ's hands and feet were pierced, like Psalm 22 does. But Psalm 2 gets at the gospel about God's wrath on sin and honoring him in a way that Psalm 22 doesn't. So you can fight over which of those two or one of the other 148 is the clearest picture of the gospel in the Psalms. Either way, however you look at it, the gospel is clearly prophesied centuries before Christ came incarnate to this earth. And so, if we are going to apply this psalm to nations today, like I want to in this episode, we have to first consider it in its context. If we want to just read a chapter of the Bible and immediately jump to modern application, you're probably going to mess up somewhere along the way because you're not considering its context. And yeah, maybe if you're reading one of Paul's epistles and you're in the application section and the way Paul structures his letters then sure, you probably won't mess up too much, if at all, if you jump immediately to application. Romans 12. Romans 12, you could probably almost immediately jump to application and you wouldn't mess up too much. You still probably would somewhere along the way, though. But pretty much anywhere else, it's even more important to make sure you are considering the context. So first, this psalm is written by David. It is to some degree about David, but it's about David in any sense it is about him. Some people would argue probably not at all, but in any sense it is about David, it is only about David typological of how it is about Christ. Same thing with Psalm 22. So if this you know, was written by David, and we know it was because in Acts it says it was, then David probably wrote this after he had already become king because he's talking about multiple nations rising up against him, not just one, which he probably would have said if this was about Saul. 
And so Gentile nations around Israel are coming together against David. But David knows that God is the source of his strength and that God laughs and mocks the nations attacking Israel. Those nations are attacking God when they attack David and Israel because David is God's anointed king and Israel is his chosen nation. So David and Israel's armies will, by God's strength, destroy the nations attacking them. Those nations that turn from rebellion against God and his chosen nation, Israel, and instead obey God and serve God, they will be blessed rather than being crushed in war against God's chosen nation. So that's more or less how we would think of Psalm 2 applied directly to David, but this is a Christological psalm. Christological, fancy word that means referring to Christ. Break it down. Christological. Ology, you know, like all the different sciences and studies that have ology at the end. So Christological is just a fancy word for saying how we talk about how Christ is referred to in or by something. And so this psalm is about Jesus. We see this psalm quoted six times, twice in three books of the New Testament. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read all of them, but I will give you those references. Acts 4, 24 to 27. Acts 13, 33. Hebrews 1, 5. Hebrews 5, 5. Revelation 2, 27. Revelation 19, 15. So... This psalm is referenced or quoted twice in Acts, twice in Hebrews, and twice in Revelation. And we're going to be looking specifically about that one in Acts 4 here in a minute when we start looking at how this psalm applies to Jesus. So here's the way we're structuring this. Uh, this is really annoying. You just want to know how this psalm applies to nations today. Then I guess you can skip ahead. But like I said, context is important. And I really think we need to look first at how this psalm talks about David, then how it talks about Jesus, and then how it talks about nations today. I think that will help us best understand how to apply it today if we go through those first preliminary processes. So the first section, the first three verses of the psalm, now we're looking at how it applies to Jesus, how the psalm was prophetic. Nations are rebelling against God. They're rebelling against all three persons of the Trinity because they rebel against God as a whole. After all, God is the one and three. He is not three separate gods, polytheism, and he's not one person, Unitarianism. He is one being and three persons. And we see them specifically in verse two, rebelling against God's anointed. God's anointed, that is God's Messiah, that is God's Christ. They are rebelling against the Father and against Jesus by name in those first three persons. And by consequence, they're rebelling against the Holy Spirit as well because they're rebelling against God and the Holy Spirit is God just as the Father and Son are God. And uh, this was specifically fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's where we're going to look at Acts 4. Acts 4 verses 24 through 27. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
So we see there the nations coming together against Christ. Apostate Israel, pagan Rome, the pagan Roman Empire, they are coming together in rebellion against God. But unlike some of the other prophecies about Jesus, this wasn't just fulfilled in Jesus and only fulfilled in him. The virgin birth was about Jesus, and that's why we're not going to see more virgin births after Christ. Show me one legitimate virgin birth in the last 2,000 years. But nations rebelling against God wasn't just referring to the nations coming together to put Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. That refers to any nation in rebellion against God at any time. This psalm would apply to all of them. And then the last verse in this section, verse 3, we see that Christ is Lord and he is king and nations in rebellion to him want to throw his rule and reign off of themselves. And that's symbolized by their wanting to throw off the shackles. Christ is Lord of everyone, but to them, his authority over them is nothing more than chains that need to be ripped off. Then diving into the next section with verse 4. So, we see these nations in rebellion against God, and is God fearful of their rebellion? Is God afraid that they might overthrow his rule and reign? No. God is so not afraid that he laughs at their futile attempts to rebel against him. All the world leaders coming together in rebellion against God is like a gnat trying to crush a piece of granite the size of the planet by bashing its head against the stone. That gnat won't be successful. It will only kill itself in the endeavor. And now on God's laughter here, we see in Job 41.29 that Leviathan laughs. And of course, Leviathan as an aquatic dinosaur, we can bite on this later if you disagree with me on that. Leviathan as an aquatic dinosaur doesn't laugh like a human does. So we could take God's laughter here as possibly just using human language to describe God, what we call an anthropomorphism. So the point of those is that we understand God better. The Bible does that at times. It uses anthropomorphisms to describe God. But we need to be careful that we don't put human attributes onto God when he does that. We don't need to go further than the Bible says when the Bible uses that terminology at times. Now, God doesn't have emotions like we as humans do. God cannot be controlled by emotions like we can. God is angry with sin, so he is not some kind of stoic, but he is always totally in control of any response he has, and he planned that response because he's sovereign over every single event in the world. There's not one maverick molecule. And this verse also says that God mocks those nations futilely trying to rebel against him. So there is such a thing as godly mockery, but we also need to be careful that mocking sin is not making light of sin. And we also need to be careful that we're not giving into sinful anger or pride if we try to righteously mock sin. So once again, just if you're going to mock sin, do it in a righteous way. Don't make light of sin by making jokes about it, and don't give in to anger or pride in mocking sin. Then verse 5, God speaks to these nations in his anger. Again, God is never carried away by his emotions like we are. This is controlled indignation against sin. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews says. 
How much more when God is righteously angry with you because of your sin and rebellion against him? So God is terrifying the nations in his fury as well. This is still controlled. God is never uncontrolled. He has no uncontrolled passions like we do as humans. But God does terrify the nations in judgment for their rebellion against him. Then moving on to verse 6. God's response to the nation's rebellion is to say that he has set up Jesus as king of all the world. And in the next paragraph, we will see more about Jesus and his part in this. So verse 7. We see here conversation between God the Father and God the Son, and God the Son explaining here what the Father said to him. It refers here to telling of the decree of Yahweh, which is telling of the decree that has always been, because God doesn't change his plans because of human actions. God's plan from the beginning cannot be changed because God doesn't change himself, nor does he have to come up with some sort of plan B He's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, and he's sovereign. God never has to have a plan B because his plans are never messed up or anything like that, like ours are as finite humans. And then this also talks about Jesus being begotten here, and we need to make sure we don't get into some kind of error like some of the cults that think that Jesus is a created being. This isn't saying that Jesus came into existence at some point in time. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. So this has to mean something else here. And Calvin says this refers to when Jesus' highly exalted position was made known to the world. I think this would refer to when he rose from the dead. We see a glimpse at this in Paul's introduction to Romans in Romans chapter 1 verse 4. In that verse Paul says, Jesus, who was designated as the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it says there that Jesus, by the resurrection of the dead, was designated as the Son of God. Jesus didn't become God's Son. Jesus wasn't a regular human who attained some sort of divine status by his death and resurrection. He always was God, and taking on flesh and becoming incarnate, he became the God-man. And so, rather than Jesus becoming God at some point along the way, instead we just see that Jesus' status as God, as the second person in the Trinity, was made manifest by prophesying his own death and resurrection and then dying and rising again. And so, continuing on, we see in verse 8, the nations are the inheritance of King Jesus. After all, look at the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Jesus has all authority. Jesus doesn't just say, go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. He says, therefore, referring back to what he just said, which is that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because of Christ having all authority in heaven and on earth, go and proclaim the gospel and make disciples and baptize them and teach them all that Jesus taught. And now when the verse says here that the ends of the earth are the possession of Jesus. That's not some endorsement of flat earth. This is rather just an expression talking about every square inch of the earth is the inheritance and the possession of King Jesus. You don't watch the news, if you still watch the news, and accuse the weatherman of believing in flat earth when he tells you, yes, the sun rose at 726 this morning. 
you know, yell at the screen and say the weatherman needs to be fired because the sun didn't rise. Rather, just the way that the earth is rotating on its axis made it appear that the sun rose. Yes, the weatherman knows that. He had to study about this in college, so he probably understands how it works much better than you do. Rather, he's using an expression, and we know he's using an expression, and therefore we don't get mad at him. So why would we be okay with weathermen using expressions, but not okay with God using expressions? All that, just my little rant about people trying to say that the Bible using the phrase ends of the earth means the Bible teaches a flat earth when it doesn't. And so when it says here that the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, as Jeff, as Jeff Durbin likes to say, Jesus didn't forget to ask. The nations are the inheritance of Jesus. He is currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, with all of his enemies being over time made his footstool. And so continuing on to verse 9. Verse 9 is terrible news for those who fall under the first paragraph of this psalm. Jesus crushes rebellious people. I'll tell you what. There's so much of Christianity over the last century that's so effeminate, and we just want to look at Jesus as our boyfriend, but we need to remember that there are masculine elements of Christianity for Christian men to at times focus upon, and there are also feminine elements of Christianity for Christian women to focus on, and we don't need to act like Christian men are defective Christian women, and they just need to embrace their feminine side. As Paul Washer says, your feminine side should be your wife not you if you're a man. So here we see Jesus as warrior, Jesus crushing the heads of his enemies. This is our masculine warrior king. And if we want to try to get more men interested in Christianity, then let's talk more about Jesus as a warrior going around crushing skulls because it's probably going to get at least a couple men more open to this idea of Christianity they, they thought was really just effeminate and kind of gay beforehand no it's not it's just how it's been poorly marketed by christians trying to appeal to middle-aged soccer moms instead of being more accurate to what the scripture says about jesus all right now that I probably just offended half my audience with that let's keep going it says that jesus crushes them with a rod of iron so picture pounding someone with a solid steel baton it says that Jesus shatters the rebellious like a clay pot. And, you know, clay pots don't do that well when they fall and hit a hard ground. There is probably no gluing that thing back together. There's way too many pieces. Just give up on it and buy a new one. And picture that is what Jesus is doing to the rebellious nations in the first three verses of this psalm. And let's look at a case example in the Bible. Well, Part of this is in the Bible, and then in history, we read about it. We read prophecies of this in the Bible, and then read about them coming true from people like Josephus. Israel, with Jesus' prophecies, and with Revelation, and then with AD 70. Matthew 24, 26, Jesus told his listeners that that generation to which he was speaking would not pass until what he prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem would come to pass. Because Jerusalem had rejected her Messiah and instead of embracing him had crucified the king of glory and just totally rejected God and they were judged for their sin. They were crushed in AD 70. 
all of Jerusalem was, except those Christians who heeded Christ's words, they saw it coming and escaped the city beforehand. And a generation, biblically speaking, is 40 years. Jesus, depending on who you ask and looking at the dates, was crucified probably in 30, 31, or 33. And no matter where you start at, which one of those, you either have AD 70 as exactly 40 years or a little bit under 40 years away. So that generation didn't pass by the biblical standard of 40 years. And these rebellious people in Jerusalem were crushed by King Jesus. Israel was not a nation again until 1948, nearly 2,000 years later. So for all that time in between, the Jews were a scattered people group with no land to call their nations. So when God crushes a nation for disobedience, the penalty is severe and painful. And then we move on to verse 10. We're starting to look at the last section of this psalm. These rulers of the nations, whether president, prime minister, king, or whatever other term people want to use, they are to show insight and take warning. They are to take warning about the judgment of the son that was just spoken of. They are to show insight by doing what is necessary for that judgment to not come upon them. So how are they to show insight so that this wrath would not pass on them? Well, we're going to look at these last two verses and we're going to see. Verse 11, serve God with fear. Not just serve God, but serve him with fear, displaying true obedience to him from the heart, not just outward conformity. And now everyone will one day bow before Christ their king. Those who do it shortly before being cast into the lake of fire do it not out of an inward love for and faith in Christ, but out of their lowness and his greatness. They honor Christ like a criminal who knows he's done wrong and would do it again given the opportunity, like he honors a judge when he's in court on trial for his crimes. He hates the goodness of that judge in front of him, but he recognizes the power that that judge holds. The same is true for the rebellious who will still bow the knee before Christ, before they are crushed for all of eternity in the lake of fire. Those people do fear Christ, but with a terror over his greatness and his judgment of their sin, which is different than the way that Christians have a godly fear of Christ, a fear that takes into account our lowness and his greatness, but it is also fueled by our faith in him. And we are not just to fear God, but even in our trembling before so great a God, out of awe of him, we are even then to rejoice. Believers in God should simultaneously fear God, trembling before him, even as they rejoice to be in his presence and be at peace with him. That's why we see in that verse that it tells us to rejoice with trembling. And moving on to the last verse of the psalm, kiss the son. And now before atheists make some sort of blasphemous meme about the Bible teaching that we need to kiss Jesus, this isn't like that. The NASB says here to do homage to Jesus. That's a little bit more thought for thought than word for word, but it at least saves us from some blasphemous memes from atheists. It means to respect his position and authority and fall down before him. Uh, think of it more like falling down before Christ and kissing his feet to 
get a better idea of that concept to our modern minds. You know, people still think of the old medieval king that his servant would fall down before him and kiss his feet. So I guess if you're going to think about kissing the sun here, kind of think of it more like that concept. John Calvin says in this verse, the term kiss here refers to the solemn token or sign of honor which subjects were wont to yield to their sovereign. If we are to worship the Father rightly, we must also worship the Son, as we see in this last verse, and also the Holy Spirit, for all three are God. If you do not have the Son, then you do not have the Father also, as Jesus says in the Gospels. So pay this honor, this reasonable service of worship to Christ, lest he become angry and you perish under his wrath. This isn't God being vindictive or needing attention so he destroys those who won't worship him, like atheists blasphemously say. This is Jesus coming in righteous judgment on those who rebel against him, as we saw in the first nine verses. Christ's wrath may quickly be kindled, not because he's quick to anger. Being quick to anger is sinful and God never sins. In fact, we are often told in scripture and shown with examples of how slow to anger God is. Christ's anger may quickly be kindled because he has righteous anger on sin and rebellion against his authority. And knowing that sin brings his anger and requires punishment from him, we should be quick to do what verses 10 to 11 tell us to do. However, unlike those who rebel against God, all those who take refuge in Jesus Christ are blessed. So who's taking refuge in Jesus Christ? Believers are. And what is taking refuge in Jesus Christ? It is believing the gospel. It is repenting from sin. It is placing faith in Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross for his people. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us have been the people in the first three verses of this psalm. And we deserve his wrath to be kindled and poured out on us. We deserve to be crushed by King Jesus with a rod of iron for our sin. But those who through the gospel, by repenting and putting their faith in Christ's death on the cross for them, have taken refuge in Jesus and they will be blessed instead of shattered. That is the glorious gospel in the Psalms. Psalm 2. So, how should we think of Psalm 2 as it applies to nations today? Well, before we get started on that, let's first give the line from the first part of the Warrington Declaration to give us a good frame of mind for understanding this psalm. It says, We affirm that all authority in heaven and on earth has been bestowed upon God the Son, Christ Jesus. And their scripture citations are Isaiah 9, 6-7, Daniel 7, 13-14, Colossians 1, 15-20, and Matthew 28, 18. And I'm saying that you could also add to those references Psalm 2, 7-9. Alright, so with that frame in mind, let's jump into it. First paragraph, nations join forces together against God. Well, we can check that box off. Just look at what all the nations around us are doing today. All the first row nations and pretty much every nation. Abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, you name it. 
you know, people are going to get mad about that and be like, you're talking about political issues. Don't talk about political issues from the Bible. Just talk about the Bible. Well, the Bible talks about political issues. No other name given under heaven by which men must be saved but the name of Christ. That was said about Caesar. They were saying something very political. It was a very political statement for the early Christians to say that. And, in, you know, things like homosexuality and abortion, they are only political because politics is the legislation of morality. Those are moral issues that, by necessity, must be political because, like I just said, laws legislate morality. Murder is morally wrong, so we have laws against murder. Abortion is morally wrong, so we should have laws that abolish abortion in our nation. So let's look at some of these. Abortion. It is the murder of preborn image bearers of God. The preborn are humans just like us. Just because they're smaller doesn't mean that they are less valuable. Someone who's only four foot tall isn't less valuable and less of a human than a basketball player that's several feet taller than him. Just because their location is different, that doesn't mean that they are less human. Just because they are inside of their mother rather than outside doesn't make them less of a human. While there are those and other arguments I could go into that from a logical or philosophical standpoint talk about why preborn are human just like us, at the end of the day, those arguments aren't our foundation. God's word is. God's word says that the preborn are human. Just look at Psalm 51.5. David was a sinner from the moment he was conceived in his mother. And, you know, if David wasn't human, I'm not quite sure how he could be a sinner. I don't know how a non-human blob of tissue could be a sinner. And that is why killing them is murder. Because it is murder whenever you unjustly kill a human being including those who are preborn. But this includes other things as well, like abortifacient birth control. As far as I know, all chemical birth control is potentially abortifacient. And now I know people want to fight me on that, and I'm not going to go into all the details in this podcast, but you know what? PM me on one of Theana Money's social media or email me at theanamoney at gmail.com if you want to fight about it. And I will show you how... As far as I know, unless there's some brand new one, all chemical birth control on the market is potentially abortifacient. Then there's how abortion gets used in medical practices. Aborted fetal cells in medicine, such as making many vaccines, including COVID-19 vaccines. There's humanizing mice. Mice have a similar immune system to humans, so by putting aborted fetal cells into a mouse, we can make that mouse immune system even more resemble a human immune system and then we can see how the mouse reacts to a certain disease or virus or other illness and get a pretty good idea of how a human's body would react to it. But we are using cells from aborted babies to genetically manipulate mice to have immune systems that resemble humans, thus using murdered human beings in the process of attempting to save other human beings. Uh, then there's also stem cell treatments. You know, when we use stem cells from aborted, i.e. murdered, preborn babies, and then use their stem cells to do all different sorts of things, making medicine, trying to help people recover from injuries faster, 
and things like that. Uh, you know, if we were to go back like 800 years and explain the process of using aborted fetal stem cells to try to help someone heal from an injury faster or things like that, you know what someone 800 years ago would probably say in response to that? They'd go, oh yeah, necromancy. Let that sink in for a second. Uh, then there's also IVF, in vitro fertilization. This is creating a bunch of new human beings and then implanting some of them, but murdering the quote-unquote unfit ones. Then it's putting the unused ones that were considered fit enough but weren't implanted in frozen prison. This is where we talk about snowflake babies. And then if there's any of these quote-unquote leftover humans, using them for scientific or medical experiments. So there's a lot there about abortion. I did a whole episode a few months ago about the Hyde Amendment that got into some of these things. You can go listen to that after you're done with this one if you want to get a little bit more of it. Uh, then there's homosexuality, the whole LGBTQ movement. Well, the Bible condemns it. People talk about the six clobber verses. And so, yeah, it is explicitly mentioned six times in the Bible and thoroughly condemned, New Testament and Old Testament. But it's also mentioned dozens of times implicitly. Just because the Bible says something implicitly rather than explicitly, that doesn't mean that thing's not in the Bible. Good and necessary consequence. Like, you know, the Bible never uses the word Trinity. So actually the Trinity is implicitly taught in the Bible, not explicitly. And what I would mean by that is Jesus never says, I am God, worship me. But we can point to hundreds of verses that show us that Jesus is God. And something I heard John MacArthur say a long time ago about homosexuality, he says people will come up to him and they'll say, since homosexuality is being embraced in our nation, do you think God's going to judge us for it? And MacArthur responds, no. Homosexuality being embraced in our nation means that God is already judging us, not that he's going to. Or actually, it's a both and. It is a downward spiral of God is judging us by allowing homosexuality to be embraced in our nation. And then because it's being embraced in our nation, God is judging us for that as well. Both sides just feed off the other in a lose-lose situation. And you know, back when... Obergefell came down when that ruling was passed. A lot of us were talking about how this was a slippery slope for people embracing pedophilia and polygamy. And everyone was just like, oh yeah, slippery slope fallacy. Haha, ha, you're stupid. And then six years later, here we are. We were unfortunately right. That was one time I was really hoping I was wrong. Uh, so the next one, transgenderism. Oh, these are all so fun, talking about all the ways these nations are rebelling against God. Oh, the Bible never explicitly says you shouldn't try to turn yourself into a woman if you're a man. Well, like we were just talking about explicit versus implicit things in scripture. Pretty sure transgenderism wasn't an issue 3,000 years ago, so I don't think God needed to address it in Deuteronomy as he was writing that to Israel. So, God made them male and female, Genesis 1.27. Don't try to mutilate your body by cutting off your genitalia because you're going to try to pretend that you're the other sex or that you're one of the like over 9,000 new sexes that they've created in the last like seven years. 
Uh, fornication. Wow, is this one that is embraced a lot in our culture. Um, the Bible is pretty clear that sex should be reserved for marriage between a single man and a single woman. And Jewish tradition and church tradition repeat the same theme. So, not really much to say about that. Been said by a lot of other people, like every first world nation is okay with it. I'm pretty sure the legal age of consent in Japan is like 12, which is all sorts of messed up. America's getting there too, the way pedophilia is slowly being embraced here. So, yeah, I don't think I need to say more on that one. Uh, pornography, let's talk about that one. Uh, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He says that lusting after a woman in your heart is a violation of the commandment against adultery. Now, granted, it is not on the same level. People try to equalize all sins. No, the Bible never gives a criminal penalty for lust. It does give criminal penalties for adultery. But it is still a violation of the commandment against adultery to lust after a woman. And then someone will respond, I'm not lusting after those women when I watch porn. I'm just admiring the female body that God created. You know what? Just shut up, okay? Yes, you are. You are lusting after her. If you were just admiring the female body, you can do that equally well when she's fully wearing clothes and equally well when you're looking at your wife, not some pixels on a computer screen. So just shut up and stop being stupid. Admit your sins so that way you can repent of it and stop making excuses for yourself. Also, by the way, tons of people have already talked about how porn makes you effeminate. So if we want to get men to rise up and stand against tyranny in our culture, then we need to get less men addicted to porn that kills all their testosterone and stuff like that because it's all going towards pixels on a screen, not going towards standing up for godly ordering of society when those above us are overstepping their bounds that they have been given by God. Divorce. Oh, these are all so fun to talk about. Divorce. What God's joined together, man shall not separate. Mark 10, 9. And now the Bible does talk about divorce. Paul teaches us that if a believer has an unbelieving spouse who wants a divorce because of the faith, then the believing spouse is not forced to resist the divorce. But that's a far cry from our society. You know, I thought talking about all these things our nation is doing and why Jesus is going to judge us for it would be more fun. This is really depressing going through all this stuff. So yeah, so on divorce, they'll try to say, oh, we're still best friends. We just fell out of love, but we still hang out all the time. All right, if you still spend that much time together and you still like each other so much, why do you get divorced? Probably just define love as having fuzzy feelings for each other and... You know, you're never going to always have fuzzy feelings for another person if you spend a lot of time with them. We're sinners. We get annoyed at each other for stuff. Fuzzy feelings wear off. Also, not to mention that divorce is part of the degradation of our society. And that we are getting more children raised by divorced parents, raised by single mom or even by single dad. And children raised without a father in the home. Just look at the statistics. Usually don't do as well in life as children raised by both of their parents. That's not saying that women are just horrible and can't raise their children on their own. I'm sure it's the same case if someone's raised by a single dad. There's a reason that God created a mother and a father and that we don't just spit eggs out of our mouths like the Namekians on Dragon Ball Z.
All right, tyranny. Let's talk about this. Uh, this is when the civil magistrate steps outside of the God-given bounds over it. They can do this in several ways. They can command sin. They can command Christians to do something that is sinful. You hear stories about the Holocaust where someone would be, you know, told to put up in the driver's seat of a bulldozer and told to push the ground over the mass grave with people still alive in it. And if the person doesn't do it, then they're going to get shot. And I don't know. Was I just weird and had people talking about stuff like this when I was a kid and no one else did? But you had, you know, talk about whether or not you would have the fortitude to be willing to be shot rather than be forced at gunpoint to kill others. That would be the civil magistrate commanding sin. I'm sorry, that was a little bit of a graphic example. I should have given a warning there. But also, when they command us to abstain from something, that is a righteous thing to do, and not doing it is sin. Like when the government doesn't allow us to go to church and then throws pastors in Canada in prison for holding church because, you know, lockdowns and social distancing, even though they are hugging after they pass Bill C-4. And speaking of that, not allowing Christians to evangelize homosexuals, which Bill C-4 up in Canada will do once it goes into effect here in a couple weeks. Literally commanding Christians to not evangelize homosexuals and telling them that if they do, they can go to prison for five years and be fined thousands of dollars. That is tyranny. Tyranny doesn't have to look like people over in China getting thrown into prison camps. Tyranny doesn't get there overnight. If we don't resist the small amounts of tyranny that our nation is doing, then those small amounts will snowball into the bigger things we see in other nations and we see starting to come our way in Western nations. Let's look at one more before we close today. Legalized theft, i.e. socialism. Now we're really getting at economics on this economics podcast. Good job, Jeremy. Actually talking about what the podcast is supposed to talk about. Socialism, government Robin Hood, pretty much all it is. Stealing from those with money to give it for free to those without. After taking um, processing fees, quite large ones, as in the salaries of government officials, off the top of it. Scripture condemns all forms of theft, even when the government is the one doing it. Charity should be done by the family and the church, not by the state. Charity should be done by the first two spheres of sovereignty, not the third one. And if you want to learn more about that, I'm not even sure how many episodes have gotten to this so far. Um, look at Caesar, Care for the Poor, and Socialism, one of the earlier episodes. Look at the one I mentioned near the beginning of this episode with Matt Belleville, which was about taxes and uh, care for the poor. Hold on a second. Let me look back at the name of that episode. Taxes and Christian Welfare. That's what I named it. Thank you, post-production, for letting me cut out the pause that you all didn't hear there as I looked up the title of that episode. So there's just a lot of resources in past episodes of this podcast about socialism and how this is rebellion against God. So those are different ways, by no means an exhaustive list, of how we see nations rebelling against God, just like this psalm talks about in our world today. So there is just so much sin and trying to throw off the shackles of God's authority and kingship in nations all around the globe today. So why don't we see God currently judging the nations 
in rebellion right now? Why don't we see them being right now, right before our eyes, in about five seconds, being put underneath his feet? John Calvin says on that, Let us therefore assure ourselves that if God does not immediately stretch forth his hand against the ungodly, it is now his time of laughter. That's what Calvin said about Psalm 2. If God is not currently judging the nations for their rebellion, it is the time he is taking to laugh at them for their vain attempts at even trying. God sometimes allows it to look like the wicked are winning. He's merely giving them a chance to repent, or he's allowing their wickedness to ramp up until he finally comes in judgment, like the nations that Israel displaced. We see that in Genesis 15, verse 16, when God says to Abraham that the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete, which is why by the time that Abraham's grandson Jacob would be born, and then they'd go down to Israel and spend 430 years there. It'd be like 500 years after God told this to Abraham before Israel would come and judge those nations. God was allowing the sins of the Amorites to fuel up, in a way, giving them a chance to repent, except God's sovereign. God knows they're not going to. I'm a Calvinist, after all. But rather, allowing their iniquities before God to compile. Also, as we talk about all these nations and ask why God isn't judging them right now, actually God is judging them right now, just not always in the way we expect. We reap what we sow, after all, and nations that do these things are reaping what they sow. On the individual level, we see, you know, crimes bring about judgment, either from law officials or from other criminals committing crimes against you. Uh, Certain sinful practices are more likely to bring diseases, like sleeping around, especially homosexual sleeping around. God has written certain repercussions for certain sins into the fabric of the universe, so sometimes he judges sin here and now by letting the world operate the way he made it without taking specific action against that individual, without divine intervention, judge them for their sin, God just letting them destroy themselves with their sin. And we can even see that on a national level. You know, um, so many nations around the planet are all for not trying to keep the population growing. We saw this with China's one-child policy. And, you know, when you have a one-child policy for a long time, your population starts to shrink. I read a book earlier this year called What to Expect When No One's Expecting about how horrible that is for society. And China's seeing that right now. That's why they upped it from one to two, and then they upped it from two to three. Japan's seeing the same thing. Japan, if they don't make some serious changes within like a century, are probably going to have like half their current population. America is on the verge of seeing the same thing. The baby boomers were a huge population growth. After all, that's why boomer is in their name, not just for millennials to make fun of them, but because it was a population boom. But here in a decade or two, when the baby boomers start dying off, we're going to realize that, oh, wait, our population isn't doing as well as we thought it was. Right now, baby boomers and immigrants are about the only two reasons why our population isn't shrinking. And if either or both of those things change, then America is going to be in a similar predicament to Japan. So things like that, uh, other things, the destruction of economies that socialism brings with it, the destruction of culture that certain 
sins bring with them, like the destruction of the family with divorce and LGBTQ and things like that. Those things destroy societies because that's the way God made the world. Oh, you don't want to have that many kids? Cool. What happens when your population's half what it currently is? Growing populations are necessary for thriving societies. Oh, you all want to reject the husband, wife, and children family style and try to figure out all these others. Oh, look at all the crazy stuff that's happening now. God has built judgment for certain sins into the way the world operates. And we are seeing that in our nation, but take heart, Christian, because... When the world destroys itself, we can, like I've said before in this podcast, be the ones standing on the ashes to rebuild and thus further God's kingdom on this earth. God can also specifically terrify the nations, to use the language of Psalm 2, with natural disasters or disease or other tragedies and judgment on them for their rebellion against him. Doesn't it just seem like we are in recent American history seeing more natural disasters than our history books tell us happened in the last century or two? More forest fires. A tornado with the, I believe, the longest miles spent touching the ground in recorded American history. Things like that. I think it's pretty safe to say that those things are God judging a nation for its sin. But whatever happens, there is a day of judgment, and we will all be found guilty unless we have been redeemed by Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So turn from your sin, lest the wrath of the Lamb fall on you. Bow before him in faith that his grace will be poured out on you, not his wrath, because then you will be at peace with God. So the nation's rage, whether the individual person, or the nations corporately. But God will crush them for the rebellion unless they repent and obey the gospel. And all who obey that gospel are blessed. And after all that talk about trying to skip stuff, I really didn't skip much at all, and this episode's still an hour long. But hey, hope it was great. So as we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Oh, you said.